0: Never a dull moment in our Shakespearean drama. The players are the metals, energy, major politicians. It's better than Shakespeare, one could argue. It is real life, so-called. Hello and welcome to our Christmas drama here, our Christmas play of real life. The basics of what our lives are made of, the metal on your laptop, the rare earths in your phone, Perhaps even in your headphones, one imagines all that miniaturization of where you're listening to this podcast right now. Hello and welcome to the Northern Miner podcast. My name is Adrian Pocabelli, bringing it all home. Again, as we continue to put the pieces of the puzzle together, it's this narrative. You know, we find a puzzle piece here, we find a puzzle piece there. It seems to fit while other puzzle pieces are falling away in our narrative. It will never be complete. Will it? And so if we take a step back, other players in our drama, the Federal Reserve, you know, interpreted as pivoting. I did watch the press conference on a plane flight, and I didn't actually hear the pivot, but all of the analysis afterwards seemed to suggest that indeed something was said. I was by the plane engine, so perhaps I didn't hear it. But all to say, it seems like the Fed has come out and Jerome Powell has said, okay, this is a one-off this pandemic and really inflation is coming down and really the our concern as responsible stewards here being concerned with employment and inflation is to not overdo it and a lot of people have said credible people like david rosenberg that in fact they have way overdone it so the fed arguably has pivoted now of course a couple of fed governors came out in the following days you know dialing back the narrative telegraphing to the market you know do not get ahead of yourselves Nevertheless, a bit of a risk-on feeling in the market. And interestingly, this story from the Fed on inflation really more or less being taken care of, the first hints that it is being taken care of, nobody is talking about hiking, at least not that I heard. Interestingly, as that happens, we see all of these headlines coming out of the Red Sea, I'm sure you've seen many of them, where global shipping goes through in order to get to Europe. You know, moves from... The Middle East, the Persian Gulf to the Strait of Hormuz over into the Red Sea and then through the Suez Canal run by Egypt and then into the Mediterranean. And, of course, a lot of Chinese shipping, Indian, again, Middle East energy. And so several shipping companies, as you've likely heard, have canceled their routes through the Red Sea and rerouting them around the Cape of Good Hope on the southern tip of Africa. So this is a longer journey, one could argue a more expensive journey as well. And British Petroleum, just yesterday, as you may have heard, BP is now no longer going through the Red Sea. And it's quite interesting. I saw over the weekend, as these headlines were starting to cross the newswire, I was watching YouTube, and this new channel showed up in my feed that had been around for a while, and it's, I mean, you gotta love it. It was someone who is an expert in the history of shipping, who had actually worked in shipping, and who was describing everything that had happened. I mean, you have to love it. What's going on on YouTube over there? Where we also host this show, I might add. And the host showed this video of this helicopter that landed, you know, with these Houthi rebels, you know, with GoPro cameras. I mean, very reminiscent of what we were seeing with all the footage in Israel. Of course, not on the same violence scale, but in terms of having these GoPro portable cameras in HD, terrifyingly recording all of this, it looks like a movie. It looks like a video game. It is not. It is actually real footage, and you see them approach the crew, getting off the helicopter, and almost a SWAT team of sorts from Yemen, and the crew, according to the host, is still taken hostage. The ship is gone. It has been taken offline. The crew has not been returned, according to that expert on YouTube. Now, there is another story that this expert was saying, which is there was another ship that was attacked. It was boarded by Houthi rebels, and the crew went to a special place on the ship that basically the hijackers can't get into. It's like a special room. The crew then notifies the U.S. Navy. U.S. Navy comes. The hijackers have to get out of there. And so that crew was saved. But, I mean, if you're wondering why these major shippers are panicking or basically saying no more, one imagines it's for reasons like this. There's nothing like seeing the footage. And it's very interesting, frankly, from a media perspective. Like, what is going on with this footage? Right? We saw it on October 7th when Hamas entered Israel. They did it with footage. And we're seeing it also here with these Houthi rebels that, as far as I understand, are thought to be backed by Iran. Again, cameras. I think it's designed to provoke fear. Like, why else are you doing this other than, like, when you see that video, like real world video, again, it, it looks like a movie. This helicopter coming on the ship. It's a sunny day. These guys going like a SWAT team, like actors in a film, you know, on this stage here and you know you see them take this poor crew and the video stops. Probably designed to bring terror if I had to put an interpretation on why the video, right? So, Fed pivots. Inflation is basically done, they're starting to say. Meanwhile, one of the major shipping lanes has been arguably blocked for all intents and purposes. Sure, Okay, the U.S. Navy is there. Apparently, there's a bunch of ships coming from Europe, Canada, France, Italy. Everybody is pitching in because, obviously, it's pretty important for the West, right? This is the shipping of goods and energy. So, right now, they need to clean that up. And we have George McLeod here, fortuitously a geopolitical and mining analyst. you got to love that combination, particularly for this show who joins us here after more than a year. So I was thrilled to get George McLeod back on, a managing partner at Access Mining, who gives a fascinating perspective on many of the major hotspots around the world from Ukraine, which George claims like Europe and U.S. can't get far enough from Ukraine right now. As he described it, they just ran out of the restaurant without paying the bill. They want the Russians to pay the bill for this. Uh, They can't get far enough away from it. Very fascinating, just to whet your appetite on just some interesting perspective here. And again, there's a lot of speculation in what we're doing here, right? We have to triangulate. We have an unfinished puzzle that will never be finished. So all we can do is try and be as sophisticated and, frankly, as humble as we can in our interpretations here, knowing that we could get this completely wrong— But if we take the most obvious concern here, if I'm the Fed, I go, okay, we just said inflation is coming down and it's looking pretty good in terms of its trajectory. Nevertheless, we have potentially one of the world's most important shipping lanes is in effect blocked for the time being. And it includes the energy that goes from the Middle East to Europe, right? And we have seen oil prices jump. And so that is also an interesting factor here. And, of course, you know, I've been around enough Christmases now to know there oftentimes is drama at Christmas. And I haven't even mentioned the volcano. There's a volcano in Iceland. It sounds like it is not overly dramatic in terms of the risk. In other words, it's not going to put a big cloud of ash across the entire world and freeze us for 10 years is what I'm trying to say here. It sounds like it's not as bad, but one never knows. I mean, we really do take for granted at times nature. There could be an asteroid that hits us. There could be a volcano that goes off. And what are you going to do about it? Right? It kind of reminds humanity of its place in this larger ecosystem, which I think a lot of miners understand. You know, having to face the elements, as they say, mining is a difficult business. And it's because nature, it's not as easy as it all sounds. And we are not as all high and mighty as we might think sometimes in the face of these larger Massive forces. So with that, if you want to find us online, you can find us at northernminer.com. You can find us on Twitter at Northern Miner. You can find us on Facebook, LinkedIn, and YouTube, where we also host these podcasts. And wherever podcasts are available, including Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, and SoundCloud. And with that, let's turn to the news. And turning to the website, EU sets critical mineral goals but faces struggle to hit them. This is Reuters via mining.com. The European Union has set targets to dig up, recycle, and refine lithium, cobalt, and other metals it needs for its green transition. But a shortage of new money, crippling energy costs, and local opposition could put them beyond reach. Crippling energy costs, I mean, we're at WTI, $73.58. And Brent Crude, which is the international price, which I think Europe uses, is at $79.38. I mean, we're below $80 a barrel and we have crippling energy costs. What are they going to do at $110 a barrel oil? Let us continue here. Uh, The bloc will likely need to find ways to trim demand, find substitute materials, and forge partnerships that break China's stranglehold on mineral supplies. The Critical Raw Materials Act, CRMA, due to enter force in early 2024, so weeks away here, says the block should mine 10%, recycle 25%, and process 40% of its annual needs of 17 key raw materials by 2030. If I had to interpret this, we're starting to see a friction between working on paper and the reality of the mining industry, which is often quoted as being, quote, a difficult business. And not as simple as writing down, let's recycle 25%, process 40%, and mine 10%. But you have to set goals, so maybe still a reasonable thing to ask. Studies forecast recycling will be limited until 2035 to 2040, when metals re-enter the market as scrap. Researchers from Belgian University KU Leuven concluded in a 2022 report that the period to 2030 will be the most challenging for metal supply, highlighting risks for copper, lithium, nickel, cobalt, and rare earth elements. The CRMA aims to speed up granting of project permits, which for a mine should be within 27 months, from a potential 10 to 15 years from now, but other obstacles remain. You know, again, maybe this is an over simplistic interpretation, but with lithium at $13 a kilogram, I don't know why they don't just buy it off the market. Why mine it? If you can buy it for $13 a kilogram, what is your cost going to be to mine it? So Eurometo, Europe's association for non-ferrous metals, says Europe has potential, but needs cheaper energy and EU financing. And again, cheaper energy than $80 on Brent crude? The European Union has loosened state aid rules and plans to spend $3.3 billion to boost battery production, but the sums are dwarfed. By the $369 billion of green subsidies in the U.S. Inflation Reduction Act, industry groups say prioritization of U.S. over EU projects by the likes of Nearstar in gallium and germanium recovery and Gervois Cobalt in mining and refining highlights the gap. So the U.S. is being prioritized by the likes of Nearstar in gallium and germanium. Meanwhile, higher EU energy costs have forced widespread idling of electricity-intensive metal smelters. EU aluminum production fell 35% in 2022 and has dropped further this year. You know, aluminum production falling 35% in 2022 and further in 2023. I mean, that is remarkable. By a third. EU has plans to reform its electricity market, but this will take time to guarantee affordable renewable energy. So. Interesting news out of Europe. Here's the following story. Germany's BASF considers building lithium plant in Chile. Bloomberg News via Mining.com. German chemicals giant BASF is considering a lithium processing project in Chile as European authorities and manufacturers look into strengthen ties with key suppliers of battery metals in the energy transition. BASF is exploring the possibility of building a plant to turn lithium from Chilean salt flats into the cathode that goes into electric vehicle batteries According to people with knowledge of the matter, they asked not to be named given the proposal is at an early stage. BASF recently signed a deal with Wealth Minerals Limited that included lithium offtake if the Canadian explorer obtains production contracts in Chile. Shows how tenuous this whole situation is. So BASF considers building lithium plant in Chile as the EU itself is struggling to produce the metal locally. Continuing on, New sanctions bar UK entities from trading most Russian metals. This is Bloomberg News via Mining.com. New UK sanctions will prohibit British citizens and companies from trading in a wide range of Russian metals, according to documents published by the government Thursday. Prices of metals produced by Russia surged as panicky traders struggled to understand how widespread the impact of the measures would be. Aluminum rose as much as 3.7% and copper 3.1%, Palladium, which isn't covered, jumped as much as 12%. In legislation published by the UK government, new restrictions were introduced stating a UK person quote, must not directly or indirectly acquire metals which originate in Russia or are located in Russia. The documents listed copper, nickel, aluminum, lead, zinc, tin, and cobalt as being subject to the restriction, but didn't reference precious metals such as palladium. It wasn't immediately clear how wide the impact of the sanctions would be. While the UK is not a significant consumer of metals, many companies are incorporated there, including significant traders such as Glencore and many major banks, as well, of course, as I'm adding here, the London Metal Exchange. Some Western companies and banks seek to comply with all US, European and UK sanctions, potentially giving the measure greater force. The London Metal Exchange, its members and clients had been granted a license allowing the continued trade of Russian metals on the exchange, the Boers said, and it expected that the sanctions wouldn't impact trading access to the LME. So the London Metal Exchange still can trade in Russian metal, according to this paragraph. Here is a quote from the exchange the LME understands that the UK government's intention when introducing the recent sanctions in respect of Russian metal is, among other things, to prevent UK persons acquiring physical Russian metal. End quote. And so not exactly clearing up why the LME should be given the green light. You know, it seems like a toothless sanction, doesn't it? Like if the LME can still trade metal, I mean, can people buy the Russian metal from the LME. Maybe it says here, still the rules potentially may prevent UK persons from withdrawing Russian metal they buy on the burs. Okay, here we go. Starting December 15th, it said, the bulk of the new rules enter force Friday. The remainder do so December 26th. So what does the LME then do with this metal if they can't sell it? I guess they can't sell it to UK persons, but they could sell it to the United States. They could sell it to Canada. They could sell it to Europe. Interestingly, representatives for the UK Treasury and Foreign Office didn't immediately respond to a request for comment. So, interesting story there. Continuing on, palladium price surges 12% as UK sanctions target Russian metals. Bloomberg News via mining.com, palladium headed for its biggest gain since March 2020 as the UK government targeted Russian metals, but not palladium, with new sanctions. The metal that's mainly used in catalytic converters surged as much as 12% on Thursday after the UK published measures that ban British citizens and entities from buying certain Russian metals. While the measures didn't target palladium supplies from Russia, which account for 40% of new mine supply, broader concerns about disruption were enough to propel the metal to the highest since November 7th, traders with bearish positions covering their bets also fueled its gain. Palladium is still down 38% this year as demand from automakers faltered thanks to destocking and the use of cheaper platinum in its place. Supplies from top miners Russia and South Africa have also not faced the kind of disruption that many investors feared. Continuing on, a huge M&A story here. Nippon Steel agrees to buy U.S. steel for $14.1 billion. This is Bloomberg News via mining.com. Nippon Steel Corp. will buy United States steel for $14 billion to create the world's second largest steel company and the biggest outside of China. With a key role in supplying American manufacturers and automakers, the deal ends months of uncertainty for the future of U.S. steel, an icon of American industry, which has been considering bids since it rejected an offer from rival Cleveland Cliffs in August. Nippon Steel's all-cash offer is significantly higher than the roughly $7.25 billion Cliffs offered at the time, and a whopping 142% premium to U.S. Steel's share price on the last trading day before it announced its strategic review. For Nippon Steel, Japan's biggest steel producer, so this is a Japanese company, the transaction provides a large foothold in the American steel industry when U.S. demand is poised to benefit from rising infrastructure spending. U.S. Steel is a key supplier to the lucrative automotive market in particular. The Japanese company has been seeking growth overseas as it faces a slowdown in demand at home, combined with a weakening yen and surge in competition across Asia. Continuing on, unknown suspects attack Glencore's railway infrastructure in Colombia. Part of an ongoing narrative that we're seeing here of increasing political volatility in Latin America, which again George McLeod comments on in our feature interview, The railway infrastructure used by Glencore's Cerrejón coal mine in Colombia was attacked with explosives by unknown suspects late on Friday, the company said in a media statement. The incident took place in the Uribia municipality in the northern department of La Guayera, and although no one was injured, it caused damages to the railway line and one of the cars. It also led to a stoppage of coal transport from the mine to the Bolivar port, which are about 150 kilometers apart. And we have a statement from the miner, from Glencore, quote, Sarah Hone rejects these types of violent acts that put at risk the safety of our employees, neighbouring communities, and the normal functioning of our operation. We are working to enable transportation to the Bolivar port as soon as possible. Continuing on, Australia expands lists of critical minerals key to transition. Bloomberg News via mining.com. Australia expanded its list of critical minerals deemed crucial to its energy transition and national security needs as the country boosts a strategically and economically important sector. The government added fluorine, molybdenum, arsenic, selenium, and tellurium to the list of minerals that it regards as essential to modern technologies, economies, and national security, Minister for Resources Madeleine King said in a statement Saturday. Helium was removed from the list. Interesting. Officials also created a new strategic materials list, which includes copper, nickel, aluminum, phosphorus, tin, and zinc. And again, tin and zinc have performed relatively well this year. And of course, remember Robert Friedland discussing nickel, The metal doesn't exist as far as a lot of the plans for electric vehicle batteries using nickel. Uh, Continuing the article here, while these commodities are also key to the energy transition, they're not at risk of supply chain disruption and have well-established industries, according to the statement. And King said the two lists, quote, will help government focus on those commodities needed to create jobs, keep us secure, and power our economy, end quote. So if you're ever wondering the importance of our subject matter here for the Minister of Resources in Australia, Madeleine King, Metals, quote, will help government focus on those commodities needed to create jobs, keep us secure, and power our economy. This is our bread and butter out here on the Northern Miner podcast, so I hope you're enjoying these stories. And just a couple of more headlines here. China approves first graphite export permits after rule change. This is Reuters via mining.com. And... Just a paragraph here. China's commerce ministry said on Thursday it has approved a number of export permits for graphite, the first since a December 1st change in regulations aimed at protecting national security. Now, what's unfortunate about this article is they also did that with gallium and germanium, but they just released only a trickle, a small fraction of what they were releasing before. So it wouldn't surprise me at all If they did the same thing with graphite, say, hey, no, it's open. We're not completely banning it. And then you just export a small 1% of what you were doing before. So there is no word in this article of how much compared to before is being exported. And another headline, genetically modified bugs may help the U.S. recover rare earths from e-waste. This is a staff writer at mining.com. Researchers at Cornell University discovered that by genetic engineering, the bacterium Vibrio natriogens would be possible to optimize the efficiency of the purification of rare earth elements found in smartphones, computers, electric cars, and wind turbines. So this has also been tested with copper. I believe Rio Tinto has a kind of startup that has been working on bacteria that basically distill the copper from the surrounding materials. And finally, Burkina Faso replaces mining minister as gold output drops. This is interesting. Bloomberg News via mining.com. Burkina Faso's military leader, Ibrahim Trore, named a new mining and energy minister after security concerns in the West African nation curbed gold production. The shakeup comes two months after the West African nation revised its mining code to enable it to receive more in royalties in boom times. Very interesting. Gold production in the first nine months through September decreased by 4% from a year earlier to 41.9 tons, according to government data. That was after output in one of Africa's biggest producers declined by 13% to 58.2 tons in 2022. At least five mines closed down amid deteriorating security conditions, followed by two coups that year. West African Resources, Endeavor Mining, and IM Gold are some of the companies that still operate there. So... A bit of a money issue, seemingly, in Burkina Faso. So those are your news stories. Now let's take a look at metal prices. Turning to metal prices, let's take a quick look at the price of money for context, looking at the bond market. And turning to the U.S. 10-year yield, it is at 3.90%. That is significantly lower, 0.32% lower than last week. The U.K. 10-year yield is at 3.65%. That is down 0.32%. So a pretty big move there. And look at Italy. The 10-year bond is at 3.64%, down 0.36%. So the Italy 10-year bond and the UK are significantly lower than the US 10-year bond. Again, one wonders if that factors into the Federal Reserve's decision to project out lower rates in order to lower the interest rates on US bonds, because they're remarkably high considering the debt. Apparently there is a big amount about to be rolled over here. Let's turn to precious metals. Gold is trading at $2059.70 per ounce. That is $63 higher than last week, bouncing back above $2000 with flare. Silver is at $24.43 per ounce. That is a dollar and 39 cents higher than last week, but still below $25. I might add Platinum is at $945.53 per ounce. That is $32 higher than last week. And palladium had a big jump at $1,179.69 per ounce. That is $220 higher than last week. So quite a jump there on the week. Turning to our industrial metals, copper is at $3.85 per pound. That is $0.07 higher than last week. Iron ore is $134.61 per metric ton. That is $0.45 lower, so basically unchanged, than last week. Aluminum is $0.07 higher at $1.03 per pound. Lead is $0.03 higher at $0.93 per pound. Nickel is also higher at $7.68 per pound. That is $0.15 higher than last week. Tin is also higher at $11.42 per pound. That is is 28 cents higher than last week and cobalt is down at $13.22 per pound that is a dollar and 38 cents lower lithium continues to drop if you can believe it it is down 6 cents at $13.67 per kilogram uranium is a dollar higher at $82.30 per pound and zinc is 6 cents higher at a dollar and 15 cents per pound Zooming out, battery metals like cobalt and lithium continue to underperform while industrial metals as well as precious metals continue to perform quite well, which probably has something to do with the dollar declining. But quite interesting if you ask me to see how gold is doing in relation to silver. We're at $2060 basically in gold, while silver is just under 25 at 24.43, so Interesting disparity there, which way the jaws snap to be determined, but kind of looks like an opportunity, not financial advice, on silver. And those are your metal prices. Coming up, I'm very pleased to welcome Access Mining Managing Partner George McLeod for an extensive around-the-world discussion on geopolitics and mining. It is a very interesting, insightful perspective on the Ukraine war on the Red Sea, on Latin America, China, the gold price, and more. So, a banquet of ideas here for those that love world politics and natural resources, the big game, the grand chessboard, as they say. I hope you enjoy it, and I will see you on the other side. Joining us today, I am very pleased to welcome back to the show, George McLeod, Managing Partner at Access Mining. George, it's been over a year since we've talked to you. It's great to see you again. Welcome back to the show.
1: Thank you very much, Adrian. We had
0: some very fascinating uh, discussions in the past. We were discussing a multipolar world kind of before it was really in the main headlines, we talked about Latin America as we approach the end of the year here of 2023 and, you know, looking back as well as kind of looking forward in 2024, what is top of mind for you as a geopolitical analyst with uh, interest in metals and mining?
1: Well, some of the issues I would say relate directly to mining. Some of them are, you know, very important macro level geopolitical issues that I think will spill over into everything. And I would say the macro level issues would be you know, obviously the, the Hamas attacks on October 6th and the fallout from that and the issues surrounding Ukraine. There's been a lot of developments on the latter one. So I think that those are going to be the the top level issues uh, as well as the developments around Taiwan. And then issues more specific to the mining sector. You raised Latin America. There's been a lot going on in Panama, which, you know, was Dubbed sort of a a lower risk jurisdiction politically. And, you know, I would say going into 2024, it's going to be very interesting how gold continues to develop going into the new year.
0: Indeed. Gold, I've been describing it here as kind of the potentially, speculatively, the general leading the charge as far as the metals. It seems to be showing a lot of strength while, you know, copper remains below $4.00 you know, lithium has been falling through the floor. Last I looked was at $13 a kilogram falling from 60 when I first started looking at it six months ago. So let's start with gold and then we'll move to some of the other topics that you're mentioning, because I think they, they do matter to us in terms of like the supply chain, what we're seeing in the Red Sea, say if we talk about Israel. But let's start with gold here, since this is a metals and Mining Podcast. What is your sense of the gold market right now? We've just broke above $2,000. As I like to say, it seems comfortable above there. Is that your sense as well?
1: Yeah. I mean, it's it's been interesting watching it over the past three years because it, it hit that level in August 2020. And there were two courses of action that it could have taken after that. The first was it could have did what it did in 2012, which was have a you know, let's say technical breakdown down to 1100. And the the second course, which is what happened in the end, was that it just went on a sort of holding pattern where it touched down to the high 1600s, but generally was trading between 1850 and 1950, which could well make it the most stable asset class of any uh, during that period. It's remarkable how stable and sort of boring almost it's it's been during this time what's also interesting is that it just refuses to have that technical breakdown despite the negative information the negative news that's been thrown at it and i think part of the reason that it continues to hold up is because of let's say. economic matters related to central bank buying, which feeds into, I suppose you could say geopolitical risk in the sense that I I think that a lot of central banks are viewing risks associated with the U.S. dollar, and they are slowly and quietly accumulating gold as a hedge against future dollar instability. I think it stands to reason that they wouldn't want to be particularly vocal about that Because, uh, you know, if you're on the buy side, you obviously, it isn't in your interest to have prices appreciate substantially. But also because, you know, I I think that it's not in anyone's interest to cast doubt on the viability of the US dollar. Uh, I don't foresee any sort of imminent collapse of USD in the coming years. But I do think that for gold, the trajectory of, of a sort of increasing diversification into that as an asset class is hugely positive and i think that with a lot of these negative factors removed from from the gold price and particularly with the federal reserves backtracking uh, last wednesday i think that it could uh, surprise on the upside going into 2024.
0: one of the interesting aspects of that gold stability as you i think really accurately describe it is you know, some people described the the strength of gold while the US dollar was also showing strength as kind of masking what was happening with gold, all this buying in the sense it was basically staying in a certain sort of, you know, let's call it between 1800 <clears throat> and $2,000 for a, a year or two as we had a big jump in the dollar. And it now seems that if the dollar comes down, that camouflage, so to speak, of the dollar maybe is about to disappear.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I think uh, one thing that, that maybe is missing from the uh, the narrative around gold, particularly in the gold, let's call it the gold bug community, is there tends to be a narrative around gold being this pillar of stability that's sheltered from the speculative excesses of other asset classes. I mean, I would argue the opposite. I think that gold is is absolutely as susceptible to speculative uh, energies as any other asset class. and And if Speculative money starts getting into the gold market in any uh, meaningful form in the coming years, which it could well do, that, that would be um, a game changer for gold. And I think we could see you know, an, an end to this, what we we're discussing earlier of, of gold trading within these very stable bands. And it could, as I say, surprise to the upside.
0: Indeed. So as you were saying, then, it sounds like, you know, to put it loosely, it sounds like the Global South maybe is hedging a little bit by buying gold and maybe diversifying a little bit from the dollar.
1: One of the issues with that is that I think central bankers and governments saw what the U.S. did after the Russia war with respect to the Russian bank reserves. And I think that was viewed as a as a as a risk for any country that may at some point fall out of favor with the United States so i think that countries are are looking at that as an example and they're trying to cast their net a little bit wider to hedge against any type of negative relations that might develop with the united states which feeds back into what you were mentioning with respect to the prc's gold buying Singapore is also a big gold buyer. They're also the elite in Singapore is quite split down the middle between being, uh, you know, pro PRC and pro Western. And I think that they're taking a very pragmatic step of increasing their gold reserves for that reason.
0: You know, just adding on to this fuel in the fire, I assume you were seeing that story in Europe, how they're trying to think about ways of taking the interest on the russian you know the seized assets that were gaining interest to uh contribute you know to give it to ukraine and it seems like cam curry who is a gold analyst who was on the show a couple of weeks ago he likes to describe there being three reserve currencies the dollar the euro and gold and if europe now is starting to basically play games with the interest on russia's seized assets one would assume that that would also potentially To your point about the seized Russian assets and being a problem for the dollar, that that could also add fuel to the fire.
1: Absolutely. And, you know, in a a unipolar world, the U.S. dollar is in a much stronger position because there's there's no alternative. But in a multipolar world, as we're increasingly living in, gold just makes sense because, you know, as the, uh, the adage that the U.S. dollar is the cleanest shirt in the hamper, but gold obviously doesn't have counterparty risk. It doesn't have inflationary risk, and so I, I think that you know, as I mentioned, I don't think that uh, we're going to see any you know massive flight from the dollar. I don't really expect much from this BRICS currency, but I do think that um, countries are are moving away from a a purely sort of euro and and dollar based reserve system to something that involves gold. And in, a, and in a market that's fairly thin as gold is, that could have huge upside potential.
0: Okay, excellent. Now, you mentioned Russia there earlier, and you mentioned a few different regions. So maybe we could turn to that now. With Russia, I remember you telling me when we first talked that you actually had heard rumblings about a uh, Ukraine war months before it ever took place. And so now, as things seem to be, I'd say at best, hitting a stalemate, if not worse for the Ukrainians, how are you seeing that conflict between Russia and Ukraine? And where's this going from your perspective?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I heard about it 18 months before the war started. And uh, so. You know, it didn't come as a surprise to to the West in terms of what's happening right now and going forward. Basically, the West and the United States, Europe in particular, are trying to get as far away from this as possible. The overall aim of supplying Ukraine with funding and weapons was to make the Russian uh, invasion as expensive in terms of, you know, financially, militarily. Uh, as possible before being completed. The goal was never to, you know, destroy Russia or even to prevent the um, invasion entirely. Although if that had happened, it would have been greeted favorably. That was never really seen as realistic. The goal was, as I say, to make it a very costly endeavor and and to uh, disincentivize I- any future action by Russia. Now, the big issue is going to be the reconstruction cost. And uh, Europe and the United States don't want to be handed an invoice. It's going to be extremely expensive. The World Bank projected the reconstruction cost to be around $500 billion, which could be on the low end. At the last meeting in London, the Americans, I think, Pledged five billion, and the and the Europeans thirty, so they're not even coming close. And so the challenge right now for them is, as I say, to get as far away from this as as humanly possible, so that the Russians are left with the with the tab. You know, they're running out of the restaurant and leaving the Russians to pay the bill. So you know, along those lines, I I wouldn't be surprised if some kind of a settlement is made in 2024. I don't know exactly how what form that would take you know the issues right now related to congress and hungary um, you know blocking future payments to ukraine i think it serves the interests of both these countries to have those blocked and then alongside that with the reconstruction cost another factor that's causing them to want to push away from this issue relates to uh, weapons smuggling ukraine going into this war prior to the war had a serious corruption problem And obviously in the fog of war that, you know, worsens. And I've heard stories of, you know, crates of NATO weapons being sold unopened, turning up in Pakistan, turning up in the Middle East. There's even apparently some turning up in Mexico with the drug cartels. And I think that it's getting out of hand. And I think the Western powers would rather see, you know, a single authority in charge of the show, you know, regulating this, this sort of thing. And then a final issue is is there seem to be increasing corruption scandals within the Zelensky administration. And I heard that there are some murmurs amongst the European capitals on, you know, what to do with this guy. Now, perhaps that will mean he, you know, takes a holiday to to Cyprus and goes into retirement. I don't know exactly what's going to happen with that. But I would say those three factors are coming together to cause the West to disengage from, from the Ukraine issue. You know, I've said all along that uh, the the rumors initially of this turning into World War III were uh, absolutely unfounded, and I, I think that's playing out now as well
0: interesting and turning to then what's a very kind of topical almost a headline issue right now with what's going on in the red sea we're seeing major shipping companies are you know saying they don't want to travel through the red sea anymore there's missiles and drones being sent out quite a few headlines on the weekend Uh, what is your sense of what's going on with these attacks coming out of yemen
1: yeah it's it's a bizarre issue. And um, making it even more bizarre is that the disproportionate number of these attacks have happened on shipping interests linked to an Israeli businessman named Rami Unger, who himself is uh, you know has a fairly colorful track record uh, involving you know ties to important government officials, figures in Mossad. So that is an interesting aspect of it. Another factor going into this I think is the is is what I view as the most important geopolitical issue in the Middle East which is the Syria conflict. In Syria we have, you know, basically you know Russia, the United States, Iran and Turkey all actively with bases and soldiers operating in that country. There's been Israeli air raids into Syria, which have been facilitated by Russia, who switch off their uh, the air defense systems before the Israeli raids go in. And what it looks like with that is that basically the Israelis are, in a way, supporting the Russians and the Syrian government in preventing the establishment of a, let's call it a parallel Shiite structures within Syria that would challenge the Syrian state. And so my point being that this issue with Yemen, of course, the Houthis being a Shiite uh, movement, it seems to me that that would have a link back to Syria. And I think that a lot of the, you know, issues in the Middle East actually would link back to Syria. We have you know, all of the players, as I as I say, including Hamas, is active there. They made an agreement with the uh, Syrian government in uh, 2018. Hezbollah is active there, as I say. So I, I think that you know, as to whether how far this will go with with regard to the attacks on shipping, this will come down to you know talks behind closed doors between the between the powers between Iran and Israel, who have. Um, a fairly, I would say, strong communication links through through Russia and as to whether they can sit down and hammer out some kind of an understanding.
0: Fascinating. I mean, this is a pretty important shipping <clears throat> lane for global shipping and energy. Like, what are the implications of like something like the Red Sea becoming untraversable? You know, we have a headline here just on CNBC right now, oil major BP becomes latest to pause Red Sea shipments. Yeah. It sounds Pretty urgent and important. So, what are the implications from your perspective on like? I I imagine it's just very disruptive, right?
1: <laughs> it's very it disruptive, is. and it could it it could get worse before it gets better. On the positive side, it, it does relate to a group that's not let's say it's not rogue. It's not you know a ragtag pirates. Let's say it's a group that has a structure and it has a it has backing. And the reasons for it happening are, as I say, they're fairly easy to pinpoint from the perspective of the re- relevant powers this is i think the the type of thing that we're going to see more and more in this multipolar world is is small flare-ups in different parts of the world which are examples of the you know the new superpowers prodding each other as to a solution of this red sea issue it will come down to the iranians and the israelis sitting down and and uh, coming to some sort of a resolution as far as Egypt
0: is concerned, I mean, it seems to have one foot in the bricks and one foot still in, you know, friendly and allies with the United States. What is your sense of Egypt right now? I mean, they also just put that I don't know if you saw that U.N. resolution. It seemed to fly under the radar a little bit with Mauritania against Israel's actions in Gaza. What's your sense of Egypt right now?
1: Egypt is extremely bad economically. And I think that uh, Israel and the United States attempted to use that to their advantage following the, the attacks on October 6th. Egypt wasn't interested in, you know, getting any more heavily involved in the Gaza issue. Their economic problems don't seem to be getting any better. And uh, I think that the trajectory for that country is how do we stay as far away from this conflict and this issue as possible? And and I think that most of their attention right now is, is uh, directed inwards towards, you know, making it through the week, so to speak. <laughs>
0: Got it. OK, so turning over then as we travel the world here, turning over to Latin America, then you're mentioning Panama. And of course, it is uh, first <clears throat> Quantum's Cobra Panama mine, which is a major mine I was reading yeah. here over the last few weeks. I mean. I think it was, I don't know, it was 400,000 tons a year and that they produce. And the surplus expected in 2024 was something like 600,000 tons a year. What is your sense of what's going on in Panama and Latin America in general? It seems like there is a shift against mining or at least unpredictability there.
1: Yeah, I mean, Panama has been viewed as a fairly benign country politically. And uh, it's ironic that, you know, neighboring Nicaragua, which is run by a very left, uh, left-wing government under the Sandinistas, has been very stable for mining, whilst Panama, which, as I say, is, is viewed as being much more benign, has turned into a problem spot. And I think this goes back to something we were talking on previous podcasts, which is that you know developing countries can change like this, and uh, even stable ones like Chile or Panama can, can switch. And that means mining companies, which, as I've mentioned, are, cannot be moved, are completely susceptible to political events and need to be the best in the game in terms of government relations and political awareness. But specific to this dispute, you know, on one hand, I think First Quantum has a very good case for arbitration. I think their case is very strong. If they fought it out, I think they could probably win. But the problem from their standpoint is they're a single asset company. So if they were Barrick Gold, you know, they could sit it out and 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 probably get a check at the end of it, paying for compensating them for lost time. With this company, I don't know how they would be able to wait this one out. It's Arbitration can be a very long and drawn out process. It's a fair process, but it's susceptible to the same types of delays and filibustering that... Uh, regular commercial courts have, so that's going to be a huge problem for them. You know, with respect to uh, Latin America in, in general, I mean, as I brought up neighboring Nicaragua, uh, you have Caliber Mining active there, which is a Canadian company. I actually have a small number of shares in it, just to be transparent. They have a very left-wing government in the Sandinistas, which are the same guy who was, who was in power during the Reagan administration, actually. Ortega, But despite being uh, very left wing, this has been a fairly mining friendly country. The main challenge relating to Nicaragua is that the US imposed limited sanctions on doing business with certain ministries of the government, including possibly ones that Caliber is dealing with. My view on that, I used to specialize in sanctions um, for Myanmar. And you know, my view on that is that the sanctions are very vague, which is always the way they are. You know, U.S. sanctions are are by by their very nature vague, and they and they can be because they're dealing with non-U.S. entities and non-U.S. individuals. And I think that you know, mining companies don't, in the current form, have much to worry about from those sanctions. Uh, that could change, though, if something abrupt happens. Uh, that would cause the U.S. to want to punish Nicaragua and punish companies that are operating in that country. But as it stands, it would seem that the the U.S. government has a sort of don't ask, don't tell stance towards Nicaragua, which is they're sort of looking the other way to the human rights abuses. They're sort of looking the other way to the left-wing rhetoric. They have these sanctions in their back pocket. But they're not doing anything with those as it stands. But I would say that it does on a, you know, on a wider level. It speaks to the supply risks that that face commodities like like copper.
0: Interesting. And just before we move on to China, then to wrap up, what is your sense, just very briefly, if possible, on Argentina? We have that. Barrick Gold Pasqualama mine right on the border there seems like it could be very beneficial for the mining industry what's happened over there
1: definitely I mean I think it you know I I mean I said it when when he uh when he got in that you know basically this they're not going to be able to to deliver on the promises in terms of dollarizing the economy that would effectively turn all of their uh, all of the Argentine pesos into into debt that they would have to repay. There are a lot of other sort of um, overly ambitious promises that were made during the election, but there are some things I think that that the new administration will do that will be hugely beneficial to mining, cutting spending and also cutting red tape for the private sector. This is going to potentially really be a game changer for Argentina. I mean, it's uh, Argentina has huge potential, more than possibly, you know, ninety-nine percent of the of the countries in the world. And any types of efforts by the new administration to, you know, move away from this knee-jerk over regulation, controlling the currency, controlling the current accounts, micromanagement is going to be hugely beneficial. So I have high hopes for Argentina, uh, despite the comic book sort of character of of the new president. I, I do think that for mining companies, this could be a, a hugely beneficial uh, development there.
0: OK, excellent. And as we wrap up here, then talk to us a little bit about China. I mean, it seems like they have a stranglehold. On the battery supply chain, you know, graphite. We hear from you know different articles and even people we have on this program. I think synthetic graphite, it's something like 99% is refined in China. Significant amount of the natural graphite, and you look at the rare earths, and and in a sense, on and on you can go. Even things I think like nickel, it's some. If I if memory serves, it's something like 60%. So. How are you seeing the kind of the role of China today and what is happening geopolitically within that context?
1: Well, they've attempted to muscle flex uh, with respect to rare earths and lithium, but it's not a particularly good game to play. And that's because rare earths aren't actually rare. They're very common. The shortage is more in processing capacity, which I think Western or 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 Western-aligned countries would be able to develop fairly quickly, if that became a problem. Uh, lithium, even more so. I mean, lithium is practically everywhere. You know, hence the sharp declines in the price uh, from sixty dollars to about fifteen currently. So I don't think that China has a, a has a real card to play on that. You know the main thing related to china is i I think that what we've seen after the october 6 attacks is very very interesting with respect to sino-american relations when that attack happened one of the first things that the us and china did was they met and they uh, established some parameters for communication and protocols relating to the south china sea and taiwan and that was interesting because it demonstrates that the two countries don't have a desire to, you know, go to war, and they don't have a desire to really allow this dispute to get out of proportion. It shows that the attitude of both of the sides is to sort of tone things down, and that, you know, if it weren't, if that weren't the case, then the then the attacks in in Israel would have been in would have been an opportunity to do the opposite. So I think that, you know, those countries, we we can expect to see a, a sort of a less saber rattling over the Taiwan issue in the coming year. Now, that's much different than it being solved. It will continue to be to be an issue. But for 2024, I think that they've laid down a a groundwork for a more sort of benign uh, conduct over both the Sun- South China Sea and Taiwan. So I don't think that we can expect to see the PRC doing any muscle flexing in terms of uh, trade with, with what you said.
0: And just as a final question then, uh, what are you looking at as you look forward into 2024? Like, what is on your radar as we look forward?
1: Well, you know, looking forward, I think that issue in the Gaza Strip is going to, you know, there was talk initially that that it would be a regional war. I mean, I, I said from the beginning, there's no chance of that happening. We can see the evidence of that, if nothing else, in the oil price. Right after the tax, the U.S. actually started looking the other way to, oil exports from iran which is the opposite of what would happen if they were you know going to take some sort of action against iran so i think that that will probably uh stabilize to some extent i don't think anything is going to happen in terms of uh you know direct confrontation between israel and iran or the united states and iran so i think with that respect, it's going to be benign. Uh, the main issue, as I said, is probably going to come down to Ukraine and how how that pans out in terms of a settlement. You know, it's going to be messy, but I think it's it's basically going to end with some kind of a, an arrangement uh, favoring the Russian side. And then, you know, I would also keep my eye on, on Japan. There's unusual things happening there economically, and it will be anyone's guess as to how that country navigates the uh, you know, economic issues that it's facing in the coming year.
0: OK, excellent. And I know I said that was the final question, but I do have one final, final question. How do you see commodities in the coming year? Are you bullish? Are you neutral, bearish? It seems like we have a wide array of possibilities that could happen. With the metals here in particular, do you have any thoughts there?
1: Um, I mean, I'm I'm moderately bullish because I think that first of all, I, I, the recent backtracking from the Federal Reserve just tells us that the the bias from the Fed is towards looser monetary policy, which puts to rest this idea of higher for longer. So, if they, you know, if they do loosen up, um, maybe that's because they see some kind of a crisis on the horizon, or I don't know, but that that will be good for commodities. Another thing is that China is announcing a large stimulus package. They went through a, let's call it a self-induced property crisis over the past year. And they're now moving into a very stimulative uh, approach towards infrastructure and technology and other areas of the economy, which will be uh, positive for commodities. And then as well, if, if we get to the level where Ukraine is under reconstruction, then that will obviously be hugely positive for commodities. So I think, I, I think tepidly positive is my outlook.
0: I love it. Maybe that's the headline for this show. Uh, how, can pe- <laughs> how can people learn more about your work, George?
1: Well, I have a I I I launched a sub stack recently, gold intelligence, which is, uh, you know, it sort of allows me to pass on information that i'm hearing from decision makers and uh the corporate side and uh you know other information that i think is not making the headlines and that is is important so so people can look me up on that i haven't been big on twitter and and uh you know linkedin i just don't like the formats very much so i think that the the longer form uh, substack is is probably the best way
0: it sounds fascinating and i'll be sure to check that out george mcleod managing partner at access mining thank you for joining us on the northern Miner podcast and have a happy holiday
1: thank you so much
0: and thank you once again to george mcleod managing partner at access mining and to you dear listener i wish you a safe and happy and prosperous holiday as we wrap up the year here we will continue through the holiday season as usual and again i really hope you've enjoyed this year's programming we have one more to go before starting 2024 if you want to help out the podcast please leave us a review in the apple podcast directory share it with your friends and until next time have a merry christmas and a happy holiday To you and all your loved ones and everybody out there listening right now, take care.